Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, and I'm in Portsmouth, Ohio today with Ed Hughes, CEO of the Counseling Center. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Ed is a graduate of Ohio University with a BA in sociology. He earned his Master's of Public Service Counseling from Western Kentucky University and is licensed as an independent chemical dependency counselor for the state of Ohio. So, Ed, once again, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. On my morning run today, I saw the murals depicting the history of Portsmouth. If you've never been to Portsmouth, it's really something to see. The murals are painted along 2,000 feet of flood wall that's about 20 feet high, reflecting a vibrant culture, higher education, and a thriving industry in Portsmouth. The mural from 2nd and Chillicothe Streets is particularly amazing. You can see how vibrant the community was with shop lights uh, lit up at night, lots of cars parked on the street, and people just milling about walking around. And it's really in stark contrast to what I see today as I look around Portsmouth. And I can't help but think that much of the area decline is due to the opioid epidemic. So let's start by talking about what you've witnessed here in Portsmouth, Ed. Well, as, uh, as most people kind of know by now, the opioid epidemic uh, had its beginnings here in the Portsmouth area. The Huntington, Ashland, Huntington West Virginia, Ashland, Kentucky, Portsmouth, Ohio, um, triangle here was the epicenter of the opiate epidemic as it related specifically to prescription drugs. And that would be nationwide. Yes, nationwide. Uh, I, again, I know when I first heard the term Oxycontin, uh, you know, uh, that particular drug, uh, uh, that would have been about 1998, 97, 98. I'd never really heard of it. Um, and talking to some of our clients, they were reporting that that's the drug that uh, had essentially brought them into treatment. And so at that point, we started trying to, you know, find out, you know, what is this and, and how is this getting into our community? And um, typically in the past, any drug epidemic we'd experienced, whether it was cocaine or crack cocaine or methamphetamine, it was something that traveled to our community from, from an urban area, Columbus or Cincinnati or somewhere. Well, that was not the case here. As I talked to my colleagues around the state of Ohio, they had not heard of this. It wasn't happening in their community. And so what we saw is, is that um, uh, the prescribing of opiates uh, by our uh, physician community 
uh, had progressed to the prescribing of this, uh, you know, this drug Oxycontin and, and it had, uh, it was being prescribed in abundance. Uh, people were becoming addicted. Uh, people were, uh, diverting the drug from doctors in emergency rooms and selling it. It was a very expensive drug. It was selling for, for a lot of money. Um, our local doctors, uh, to their credit, started recognizing the problems that were being associated with the drug. And again, it had been, the drug had been promoted to them as a safer alternative to other opiate painkillers. Uh, so, you know, they were taking the lead of the pharmaceutical company in terms of this was a safer medication. Turns out it was not. It was highly addictive and dangerous. And But by the time that our local physicians started recognizing the problem, we had a lot of addicted people. And when they stopped prescribing or at least reduced the amount of prescribing they were doing, they were replaced by the uh, by the uh, criminal element of the pain clinics. Uh, they referred to themselves as a pain clinic, but all they really were doing was prescribing Oxycontin, Xanax, or whatever cocktail that the addicted person was using. And a number of the people that were going to these places were, of course, acquiring the drug to resell it out on the street. So this huge underground economy developed in the tri-state area around, around this drug. Uh, in 2008, 9.7 million doses of prescription opiates were prescribed in Scioto County by Scioto County physicians. That's enough for every man, woman, and child in Scioto County to get 123 doses. And the majority of us didn't get ours, so that meant that it was really not going to just people in Scioto County. If you went to a pain clinic, uh, which was usually a storefront, you would see cars from Indiana, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, uh, uh, as far away as Colorado and Tennessee, uh, people coming here and being able to acquire large quantities of these drugs via prescription uh, and then to either use or resell uh, those those drugs. And so uh, within a very short period of time, we had so many addicted people, a lot of young people. It really was striking a lot of young people. The first group of people that it really affected were middle and upper middle class, um, white, male, female mid or late 20s who had some resources to buy the drug. That was the first group of people that was coming in for treatment. It was also the first group of people that we started seeing with overdose deaths that started to, 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 uh, uh, to occur in high numbers. Uh, our local coroner was able to start tracking what was the cause of these overdose deaths, and very quickly we were finding it was the prescription opiates. Um, a few years later, we started you know, legislation came into our into the state of Ohio that essentially closed the pill mills, and made it impossible for them to operate. But by that time, we had so many addicted people, and so many of them had already started the transition to heroin, which is a very natural transition for an opiate addicted person. But the closing of the pill mills, I think, sped that up a little bit. Um, in 19 or in 2000, the year 2000, the counseling center, the agency that I work for, we uh, of our client population, less than five percent were here for an opiate addiction. Uh, today, about 95 percent of our client population is here for an opiate addiction, and about 75 percent of them, uh, their primary use of opiates is through heroin. Wow! And of course, this is a problem now that it's the rest of the nation. Uh, uh, within our community, we saw the overdose deaths. Uh, they surpassed the, the, they became the number one cause of accidental deaths in Scioto County was overdose deaths. 
Uh, then just a very few years later, the number one cause of accidental deaths in Ohio uh, was, was overdose deaths, surpassing automobile accidents. And then just a few years after that, the number one cause of accidental deaths in the United States is overdose deaths. So this presents just a huge challenge. I mean, driving around the town, when you just look around, you can see how decimated it's been. Going again back to the to the mural and the, the comparison mm-hmm. there. And so it wiped out this, the epidemic kind of made a huge difference on an entire town. Imagine the, can you speak to the challenge that families face with that with individual? Again, Struggling families, our families, we, you know, it's not, it's not as if our community had never seen drug addiction. Uh, alcohol, our alcoholism rates have always you know, been higher generally than the than the state averages and the national averages, um, but families had never seen a a drug take control of their their loved one like this drug did. The progression of opiate addiction is very rapid. Consequences start happening very quickly. Um, the uh, the fam- families were at a loss to understand what was happening to them. Um, I know I uh, I had a one of my own loved ones come to me and say, you know, Ed, some we've got to do something because there are family members out in the community asking questions about, you know, about drug addiction and and what is what are these drugs and what's happening to their loved ones. So. We actually started a loved ones program, which was a uh, an education program that was open to anybody in the community, no charge. People could come. It's still we hold it every Wednesday night at six o'clock, and and people can come and be and get this information about what is opiate addiction, what what is happening to your opiate addicted loved one, how can you really help, what kind of uh, uh, you know what kind of treatment is going to be required. Um, but then we also meet with families individually because families are were the very first casualty other than the addicted person themselves. Uh, and family members had no idea how to deal with it. In many cases, didn't know what they were dealing with. Uh, it looked different. It seemed different. It is different. Uh, and as a result of that, families uh, you know, need a lot of help and support to be able to understand how to effectively deal with it. The typical reaction of a family to a, a, an addicted person who is starting to experience the crisis in their life is generally the opposite of, the, of what will be effective in working with it. Our initial response as parents or, or fa- other family members is to try to help them with the consequences that the addiction is creating. Remove the consequences. Remove the consequences. Let's fix the money problem. Let's fix the job problem. Let's get you back in school. Let's, you know, whatever. Let's get you out of jail. Um, That's enabling. It is, but it's the first reaction that we always have as a family. And, and helping someone in a, helping a family member in a crisis is, is our whole society is built upon that. We help each other and it's effective. It works very well unless it's addiction. If it's addiction, then that typical help that we provide to another family member won't work. It will work for all kinds of other problems, but it won't work if somebody has an addiction because we're not addressing the cause of the crisis. We're not, a, we're not addressing the cause of these consequences that are starting to emerge. But that's what we were seeing. We were seeing people getting sick very quickly, progressing very rapidly, families getting very deeply invested in trying to keep their loved ones out of jail, out of prison, uh, off the streets. Uh, 
And the things that they were doing to try and help was, you know, really, you know, it was just acerbating the problem. So what should they be doing? Well, the first thing they have to do is they have to get educated. If, if their loved one was, ad- was identified as having any other disease that they had never heard of, never dealt with, that's the first thing they would do would be to try and educate themselves. You know, what is this disease? How is it affecting my loved one? And of course, the way that this affects their loved one, that's somewhat maybe in a lot of ways considerably different than other diseases, is it's the only disease that tells the, the person that they don't have it. So the sicker the addicted person is getting, the more their brain is essentially telling them that they're okay, that it's not their fault, that it's other people. It's not the drug's fault. It's something else. It's some other circumstance in their life. Or that the answer to their problem is more money, get out of trouble, more help from family. And so the addicted person is putting a lot of pressure on their family to help them but help them in a very defined way that's, again, that actually serves the addiction. So families have to get information about what they're dealing with first, and then they're going to need help in terms of how to navigate through a process of trying to understand what kind of help is available for their family member. How do they do that? Well, I, I think that it's it's based upon the community that they, that they live in. And for, unfortunately, there's not a singular resource that a person can reach out to and say, educate me about addiction and educate me about the community resources. Uh, a, a family member is going to have to look within their community to find out, you know, where is the starting point? Who is the treatment agency in our community that will... I can engage with, that will provide me with some education, that can give me some guidance, that can also perhaps be a resource for me later on. Families frequently get um, a little bit too focused initially on just trying to get their addicted loved one into treatment somewhere, and they need to investigate more about how, what, what treatment is, what the continuum of care is, what treatment services are available. Uh, what kind of assessment, real assessment of the person's drug and alcohol problem that, that needs to be done. And they need to learn about what their role is in this treatment process. Um, addiction is, one of, is a disease where the more you do for the addicted person, often the less they do for themselves. And so there's a real fine line that families have to walk in terms of being able to be helpful but at the same time, not taking over complete responsibility, thinking that it's up to us to get this person into treatment. It's up to us to make this treatment successful. It's up to us to figure this all out. If the family assumes all of that responsibility, then frequently the addicted person is not very successful once they do make their way to treatment. There, there has to be a level of investment on, on the part of the person with the disease. But that's where the family will need guidance. No one's going to figure that out except through trial and error, which is a very dangerous way to, to figure it out. But no one's going to figure that out on their own. So you spoke earlier about the treatment continuum. Yes. Can you expand upon that? One of the problems that addiction treatment has had is it's ne- it has not been, addiction has not been looked at as a chronic illness. It's always been treated as an acute illness. In other words, somebody goes into rehab for 28 days or 30 days. Somebody goes to a six-week outpatient program. Somebody goes to a five-day detox program. It's not an acute illness. It's a chronic illness. It, it, it looks more like diabetes or asthma than it does the flu. 
But typically, that's how we've treated it. We've treated all of the episodes and all of the eruptions that are created by addiction as if it's just another recurrence of the flu. And so we treat it for a little bit, and then we forget about it. We have to see this as a chronic illness, which means we need a continuum of care that looks at a, a complete health management system for people who have addiction, which means that some people can be treated in an outpatient basis based upon where they are in the progression of their disease. Some people will not be able to be treated on an outpatient. They will need more. They may need a halfway house or a residential program. Some people will need detox services. Others will not uh, based upon the drugs, the other drugs that they may be using. Some people will need a long-term residential. Some people may be able to benefit from a shorter-term residential program. Some folks are going to need a lot of supportive services because perhaps they have not completed school, they have never, they've not worked a job, they don't have a family support system. They may need a whole different treatment plan versus someone who has maybe has their education or has a skill or has worked in their life. So if you've, if you've met one drug-addicted person, you've met one drug-addicted person. So we have to be able to look that drug-addicted people, although they have the same disease and have a set of similar disease characteristics, that their lives are different and that how far their disease has progressed is going to dictate something, the drugs they're using, how long they've been using that drug. Again, the kind of social and family support that may or may not be available to them is going to dictate the type of treatment and the type of treatment settings that they're going to need. And since it is a chronic illness, then we know that this doesn't go on for a short period of time. This is going to go on forever. If I have asthma, that's probably never going to end unless they come up with a cure for asthma. So I have to be attentive to the medications I have to take, to the doctor I need to have, my environment that I need to live in, uh, and I, I can't stop doing that. So not only is it a continuum, but there's no one-size-fits-all. There's no one-size-fits-all, although creating the many different paths that, that addicted people need is going to be a challenge, and it's not really available. Uh, uh, again, the treatment industry, the drug treatment industry is really pretty young. And um, the drug treatment industry has operated outside of the general healthcare system within any state or the nation forever. Uh, you have healthcare, hospitals, and doctors, and, and nurses, and dental, and vision. And then over here to the side, you have drug and alcohol treatment, which is kind of operated in a vacuum. And we're trying to pull that all together into becoming one thing. It's all about getting well. If I have somebody that has addiction, they need to get well. Well, that's probably not just going to be their addiction. It's probably going to involve a, there's going to be a social component to that. There's going to be a spiritual component. There's going to be a mental health component. There's going to be an employment component. There's going to be a lot of different things that are going to be part of me getting well and not everybody needs all of that. Some people need every bit of it. So, but why is this so important to have it integrated with, say, their primary care? And again, integrating addiction and mental health treatment into primary care, again, gets at this idea that we're treating the whole person. Uh, and what we see is, is that the medical professionals can make a, a significant contribution to somebody who has an addiction. One of the things that we know right now is, is that every addicted person, by the time they make their way to an addiction treatment facility or an outpatient office, 
have been seen by at least 12 medical professionals prior to that. They've been seen in emergency rooms. They've been seen by primary care doctors. You know, they, they, they've been in healthcare settings, but their addiction has not been either identified or it's not been addressed. So that would not be the case if we were talking about another illness. If somebody went to get treatment for their diabetes and it was discovered they had a hypertension, we would have a response to that. Unfortunately, the response within the medical community to addiction is we don't want to treat this per this person. This person is going to be difficult to treat. And they are. It is a difficult, challenging person to treat because of the complexity of their addiction. But it's a healthcare problem. It's another healthcare issue. If we can see it like that, then the doctor, the nurse, the dentist, the, the addiction counselor, everyone has a contribution to make in terms of that person's total wellness. There are certain illnesses that a person may have from, from a, that are chronic as well. 70% of my client population have another chronic illness in addition to their addiction. And if that's not addressed, then that could be an issue that will unravel their ability to continue their recovery. Somebody that's got hypertension, somebody that's diabetic, that's not being treated, if they have uh, some type of uh, of, of infections or skin disorders that are re related to their addiction, about 50% to 60% of the folks that, uh, that, are, that have opiate addiction are going to be hepatitis C positive, which is kind of like a medical time bomb waiting, you know, that's going to have to be addressed at some point in time in their recovery. And it's not an easy thing to, to address, um, but they need to be sober and uh, to address it. And so there is where you may see that fragmentation. You have one doctor who's trying to treat a healthcare problem while a person's still continuing to use drugs, or somebody trying to deal with somebody's drug addiction while they're still suffering from a healthcare problem. And if there's a corresponding mental health issue, then that has to be addressed too, because that can unravel everybody's treatment plan. And right now, you see a lot of that. You see people trying to be very effective in dealing with an addicted person while they're in their silo. And that professional silo becomes a barrier to someone getting the holistic care that they're going to have to have. The kind of holistic care that you would expect if you went to the your doctor and they diagnosed you with two medical problems, you would expect both those medical problems to be addressed. And you would know that they were interrelated, that if I chose not to deal with one, that may affect how effective I am in, in getting getting well. Sure. So as a family, how do you support making that happen for your loved one? How do you, they're, you know, they're working on their recovery and they've got other issues. How do you join the two, primary and say a dual diagnosis? How do you, how do you link the two? Together? Well, again, the one thing that we always have to remember that at some point in this process, the addicted person is going to be driving the bus for their own treatment because they're an adult. You know, they're an adult. And so, you know, that old saying that nobody can get well unless they want to kind of thing, that's about half true. Uh, a lot of people get well and they're not highly motivated to get well, but circumstances in their life are driving them to at least try. And in that trying, they discover that they do want to get well. But then there's there's this other component of, of, of their disease that, you know, where this person is needing to take responsibility for themselves too. So the family's role in that, I think, especially initially, is for the family to know more, 
to know as much as they can about addiction and where the help is going to be and what integrated services are so that they can share that with their loved one. Now, they can't make it happen because we're still talking about an adult, but they can they can essentially line up their interaction with this person in terms of what are we willing to do to help you has to be contingent contingent uh, contingent upon contingent upon their ability uh, to uh, be able to take some ownership for their own wellness too. So it's, it's a it's a tightrope that family members have to walk, but it's one where if the family can be very well informed about what is addiction, how do you get well, what are the local resources, then at least the family won't be vulnerable to a plan that is being developed by the addicted person that doesn't match that. And every addicted person goes through various phases of getting well. I've never seen anybody skip a phase. They go through various stages. The first stage is, I don't have a problem. I can control this. And every addicted person is trying really hard at some level to control their addiction, either how much they use, when they use, or their behavior when they use, or they're trying really hard to keep their life intact with their drug use. I mean, addicted people don't lack willpower. That is not the problem here. And oftentimes they won't lack motivation. The motivation is just misguided. They're trying very hard to keep their life intact or to try and help find other people to help them keep their life intact while they're dealing with their addiction. But the addiction is telling them they don't have a problem. And remember that addicted people, at least initially in their drug addiction, are in love with this drug. They're experiencing a relationship with this drug that's more powerful than any relationship they've ever experienced in their life. And so it's that powerful in their, in, to them. So even though they've had, they are getting evidence that they should quit or, or it's creating problems, the love affair with the drug is more powerful than that, at least initially. Then we see people who have, they, they will quit. They will quit for a period of time. I quit. But it's always time limited. And it's usually about getting something fixed in their life. I'm about to get fired from my job. I'm in trouble with my family. Uh, you know, I got this legal issue coming up, so I'm going to quit. But the person is not quitting forever. They know that. They're quitting for a period of time to kind of get their act together, to get this thing back under control. And at some point, I'll be able to manage this better. And then the next stage we see is I'm going to quit, but it's with my plan. I've got a plan, and here's my plan. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And a lot of the things that the addicted person comes up with is their plan are good things. It's just the things that it generally leaves out is, is the problem. And a family can always tell if the addicted person is developing their plan because it will always involve the family's resources. That's an indication. You know, I, I want to get, I'm going to get well, I'm going to quit, and here's my plan, and I need you to do, and then you'll end up with a list of things that it's up to the family to do. And, and, and again, it's not, it is not necessarily intentionally a bad plan. It's just that's the addicted brain trying to work this thing, trying to figure this out. Because everything the addicted person does is done in terms of both. A lot of times family members say, how do I know if they're being honest or not? They're being both. They're being honest and they're being dishonest all at the same time. They're motivated and unmotivated at the same time. We're never going to see 100% of anything. It's always both because that's how addiction affects the brain. Uh, the addiction creates this other thinking process within the brain that overwhelms 
that part of the brain that can make good decisions, that can make moral decisions, that can reason things out, that can that can look in the future and say, if I keep doing this, this is what's going to happen to me. That part of the brain is still there, but it's being overwhelmed by this other part of the brain that's in love with this drug and essentially being lied to. The addicted person is being lied to. So they share that lie with other people, maybe not even knowing it's a lie. But again, so that when the addicted person is coming up with their plan of recovery, the things that it leaves out are critical. And the main thing it leaves out is getting someone outside of themselves to tell them what they need to do to recover. A coach. A coach, a professional, somebody that does an assessment and says, based upon what you're telling me, here's the level of treatment you need. You know, you don't need outpatient. You need residential. You you need medication-assisted treatment. You need detox. The addicted person will struggle taking those directions. They will want to develop that plan on their own. I want to craft my own plan. Here's what I think will work. You know, I'm going to go to the Suboxone clinic or I'm going to buy Suboxone off the street and I'm going to detox myself and I'm going to come back and live at home and I'm going to get this job over here. And a lot of the stuff sounds okay. And unfortunately for the family, when they hear quit, they don't hear much after that. I want to quit. And so the family becomes very vulnerable then to whatever that plan is. And And addicted people, because of the way their brain works, will not be able to process that the plan didn't work. I ended up relapsing. And I don't know why. So I'll go back and I'll rework my plan again over and over and over. I'll do the same thing that didn't work over and over and over again. And the addicted person, because of the way their brain's working, cannot link those events together. They cannot link that I did this and it didn't work. If I do that again, it won't work again. They can't do that. Their brain won't work like that. Hmm. So um, when do you know that they've turned the corner? So the, the last, you know, the, this phase was, I'm going to quit, but it's yeah. going to be my plan. Yes. What's next? What you'll see is an open-mindedness, a kind of a desperation. In, in the recovering world, the recovering community, you hear the word surrender. Uh, it's a very important word um, where, the, where the addicted person is essentially willing to give up their plan and let somebody else develop a plan for them, somebody else provide guidance you know, to them. And it's... Uh, and, and unfortunately, most addicted people can only get there through experiencing the consequence of their failure. Now, the problem that happens for most, uh, most addicted people and most families is that when my plan fails, I don't, as the addicted person, experience the consequence of that. The family does. It costs the family money. It costs the family resources. The family's having to step in and And that becomes part of the problem because if I can't link a consequence to my mistake, then it wasn't a mistake. If I don't experience the consequence, it wasn't a consequence. It never happened. That's how an addicted brain is. The addicted brain doesn't work the same way as a normal person's brain does. So when I make a mistake, there's a consequence, but the consequence doesn't happen to me. It happens to someone else. It never happened. And so I'll repeat the same problem over. So what we will see is, is that people, once they can experience the consequence of their own decisions and their mistakes and of what's not working, uh, again, that will create more motivation. And we will start to see an open-mindedness. A person that was perhaps not willing to do one thing that was recommended before is now willing to do that. 
And oftentimes they do it because they have to. You know, we see a lot of folks that their legal consequences leads them to the type of treatment that they need. And we're seeing a lot of people getting well as a result of, uh, of a referral from the legal system, from the criminal justice system. Uh, uh, in fact, I've been very encouraged by uh, drug courts and uh, probation officers that will make referrals and hold people accountable because uh, it's a it's a tremendous service to the addicted person because again it's kind of bypassing their brain and essentially kind of plugging in here's what I've got to do I have to do this even if I'm not that motivated to do it but if somebody will do it for a period of time and get free from the drug then the brain can start to heal and start to make some of those decisions itself so having a consequence and a condition leading somebody to their you know, to treatment is is a positive thing, nothing to be avoided at all. To that point, you have a uh, successful program with your jail diversion program. Yes. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Several years ago, I mean, we've been doing jail diversion, working with the courts for a long time, uh, and it's always been, uh, you know, somewhat effective. But during when the opiate epidemic struck and we started having so many people with legal consequences, uh, you know, whether it was just petty theft or possession, and, and it became kind of a revolving door in the court system. Uh, and we saw people getting put in jail for probation violations, which was essentially they were testing, you know, positive for drugs by their probation officer. Um, you know, we went, we went to our local county commissioners and, and, and courts and talked to them about the jail, which was overcrowded like so many other county jails are. And they have been very cooperative in helping to develop a program by which we can divert somebody from the municipal court itself before they go to jail, uh, sometimes even through the attorneys that are representing people at the jail uh, or at the court. Uh, once somebody lands at the jail, if that person expresses, you know, after they are in jail for a little bit and they express an interest in perhaps pursuing treatment, they can. there's a pathway for them to be able to engage somebody that can do an assessment and see if they're appropriate for those kind of services. And so we're, we're diverting um, 250 to 300 people a year away from county jails, you know, in our jail diversion program. Uh, and what, what that does is, because one of the things that we're also seeing is, is that the more a person rotates through that revolving door of your local jail, a high percentage of those folks will eventually end up in, uh, with a felony, and then now they're at risk for going to prison. And so what we see is, is that, that all that criminal justice activity and all that going to jail, going to prison, coming back, it doesn't better prepare somebody for being successful in their life. I mean, now, they're, now they're, it's more difficult for them to get employment. They've probably got high court fines. They, you know, they don't have a car. They don't have a driver's license. That is creating another hindrance to this person being successful you know, in coming back to the community and, and trying to initiate a recovery process, get a job, you know, do the things that they're supposed to do. So we're not, we're not making it easier. We're making it harder for that person to eventually get well. So the jail diversion and court diversion and drug courts are, are very successful if they're, if they're done with, with the idea and understanding that we're dealing with a chronic disease that does involve relapse. And that's one of the things that we've seen with our, our local law enforcement, our local judges, is they become educated and they understand, you know, that this isn't a one-time referral. I, you know, I, I can't send you, 
you know, to counseling, expect that 100% of the time that's going to work. We understand that you may be back. And if you're back, then here's what we're going to do. And here's how we're going to address it. There will be a consequence, but there will also be an opportunity. And opiate addicted people in particular need that kind of accountability. It's such a powerful brain disease that anything that we can bring that can assist that person in making a decision on a daily basis not to use. And that's what it comes down to for a while, is it's a daily decision not to use. And that might be the challenge of the day, is that, you know, regardless of everything else I need to do about my life, I've got to start with, I'm not, I, I don't want to use today. So anything we can bring to bear to help somebody make that decision day after day, at least until it gets easier to make that decision, is important. So with the diversion program, they, um, they're going to be kind of locked up, but they're going to have treatment. Mm-hmm. And then they will be tested on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. they realize that the, the consequence of their action is incarceration. Yes. And the success rate of that has been, can you speak to that? Yeah. In terms of that population, what we see, and again, it's still, you know, what we know about any kind of addiction, whether it's alcoholism or other drug addiction, is that it, it requires multiple episodes of treatment, very similar to cancer, very similar to diabetes. Very rarely does somebody with diabetes walk into their doctor's office, get the diagnosis, and then do everything they're supposed to do to deal with their disease on their end or the whatever the doctor's recommending. So this is very similar to that in the sense that addicted people are going to have multiple episodes of treatment. It is going to take them multiple efforts to be able to embrace the principles and the things that they need to do to recover. So this accountability that's afforded through the criminal justice system of kind of taking them back to square one, okay, you've relapsed, you're back in trouble again, we're taking you right back to square one, we're giving you this other opportunity, works. It just flat out works. And the success rate for those people that are able to you know, maneuver through that system are actually uh, very high, very high. Speaking of success rate, um, after somebody gets two years into their recovery, the odds go up dramatically. Why is that? Well, the first the, the first year is a critical year. A person in the first year, they're dealing almost strictly with the biology of this disease, meaning that even if they're doing everything that they're supposed to do, they're going to experience what we refer to as uh, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which means the drug's been out of their system maybe for quite some time, but their brain is still addicted to the drug. So they're still going to be craving. They're still going to be thoughts of using, uh, their brain is healing, uh, the brain chemistry that having been impacted by opiates or any other drug has been affected in a way to where their normal system of mood is not working the way it's supposed to. So it's going to take months before someone's uh, brain is working to the point to where they're not depressed or they're not having mood swings or they're sleeping well, they're not, they're responding better to stress. The first year is a biological healing process that in some ways the addicted person is kind of along for the ride. You know, there's things that they can do to help that, but in some ways it just has to happen. There's nothing that they can do, you know, to make it happen faster. It just is going to happen. Just like a healing of a wound, you can't really do too much to speed that along. There is a process that has to unfold. In the second year, usually toward the end of the first year and into the second year, the addicted person is faced with, okay, here's my life, drug-free. 
And that's when they're usually faced with the, well, here's the consequences I've created for myself. Here's the wreckage of the past. Here are the relationships I've harmed. Here's, here's, it's time now. How do I start, how do I start uh, becoming a citizen in my community again? How, how do I get a better job? How do I pay my bills? How do I take care of my court fines? How do I renew my relationship with my parents? How do I gain trust with friends that I've, that I've, that I've injured or damaged? And, you know, there's a lot of rebuilding. And in many ways, that, that looks like a tall mountain and sometimes a discouraging thing for an addicted person, you know, to deal with. And it becomes kind of another fork in the road, you know, for an addicted person there toward the end of their first year of sobriety, where it's like, now here's all the work I need to do to kind of repair my life and to get my life back on track. And uh, and we can see that sometimes those obstacles seem depressing and sometimes hopeless, you know, to an addicted person that's created a lot of damage. But we'd also know that people manage, they get through that, but it is another period. So that I think that the first two years are, are very critical. One more from a biological sense in terms of my brain healing so that I can, one, one of the things that happens in addiction is that the brain loses its ability to experience joy. So the addicted person is walking through life and their addicted life and the world is kind of just black and white. There's nothing that's causing the brain to light up in a positive way. The beautiful things in the, in, in the world, the beautiful activities in the world just look like tasks. They're not attractive to the addicted person. And unfortunately, that lingers after the person stops using. That joylessness, the brain is not responding to the stimulation that is out in their world. And so, again, it takes time. So the addicted person needs to be around people. And this is where other recovering people are so valuable in this process because other people who have been through this can look at that person and say, you know, please hang in there. This is going to get better. I know you're not sleeping. I know you're depressed. I know this looks like a hopeless situation. You know, I, you know, I, I know that nothing's fun. I know that people are trying to tell you to do things that are good for you and, and you're going to work and it's not enjoyable. I know that, but it's going to get better. And an addicted person will believe that from another addicted person before they'll believe it from anybody else. Speak to brain healing a little bit more in relation to 12-step. Well, it's, it's interesting. Again, I look at the 12 steps as a, as a program of spiritual awakening. I, I see it as a spiritual process. But if somebody wants to look at it at, from a psychological process or even a physiological process, the 12 steps can line up exactly with what a person needs to be doing in terms of their brain healing. Uh, one of the things that the 12 steps is going to do, is, first of all, is it's going to empower an individual. The first step is essentially saying you're powerless over alcohol or drugs. That's an admission, not that you're weak. That's an admission that when it comes to drugs and alcohol, my willpower is of really very little use. A person with cancer could say the same thing. I, I don't have, no matter how much willpower I've got, I can't do anything about this by myself. And that often that first step gets misunderstood is that we're saying you're weak. But it's not. It's not that at all. It's just that with the, when it comes to this, this particular thing, I'm powerless. I can't, I can't manage it. I can't do anything about it. I will use again. If I use, here's what happens every time I use. I'm powerless. And it makes my life unmanageable. It makes my life a mess when I do it. But the rest of the steps are essentially an, an empowering process. It is essentially saying, 
Now, we have to be able to find out what you can do as an individual to deal with the fact that you're powerless over this. And part of what you have to do as an individual is admit that you have limitations. There are limitations on what you can do individually with this. You're going to need help. And that help is going to come from a lot of different resources. It might be a treatment person. It might be another person. In a, it might be a person in an AA or an NA meeting. It might be a pastor. It might be a best friend. It might be a parent. It could be a lot of different. But that help, and it, help is different than rescue. An addicted person has to learn how to ask for help rather than rescue. And the difference is, is if I ask somebody for rescue, I'm generally defining what I want you to do for me. If I'm asking for help, I'm letting you define what you're going to do for me. I'm going to say, I, I need to get, I, I don't have any transportation. I can't get to the AA meeting. Let me help you figure that out. Let me help you figure that out. That's different. And that's what peers, that's what people, peers in recovery, people in AA and NA meetings will do. They will help people figure things out that they need to be doing for themselves. So, there, so when we start talking about the brain chemistry and all these issues, what we start to see is that the 12 steps relieve stress because it helps develop things in a perspective. It helps to create a support group so people aren't dealing with all their problems by themselves. It, puts, it helps direct a person to quit certain behaviors that are creating conflicts in their life. Because addicted people, just because they stop using, they continue to suffer from the primary problem that addiction creates, and that's selfishness and self-centeredness. Every human being struggles with selfishness and self-centeredness. That's kind of the way we're wired. But addiction just turns that into a monster in the life of the addicted person. And as long as I'm getting up every day thinking about 150 things, how I want things to be or how I don't want things to be, and if I don't get my way... I have a negative reaction to that, or I don't know how to react to that, I'm going to use. I'm going to relapse. And so the 12 steps start to help an addicted person to diminish that selfishness and self-centeredness, start to think about other people, develop empathy and sympathy for, for other people. And generally, the first person that they're going to get help dealing with that is an addicted person is going to hear, you need to quit abusing your family. That'll be a message because the addicted person is in this mode of using their family for to fix problems that they don't want to fix. You know, help me with this money thing. Help me with this living thing. And, and they become so dependent upon the family to take care of them that that is a process that needs to be stopped. And they will hear that. They will hear that within 12-step recovery is that, you know, you need to start thinking about the impact of your actions upon other people. It's kind of a basic golden rule kind of thing that addiction strips away from the addicted person. So 12 Steps Recovery starts to introduce us into healing relationships, having healthy relationships where we're not taking advantage of people that we're, we're asking. If we're asking for help, we're, we're listening for the kind of help that, that we need and willing to accept that and do our part in that. Uh, part of the steps is being willing to look back at our past and see and turn the story upside down or right side up. Every addicted person has a story of their addiction and it's upside down. It's essentially how consequences cause me to use, how other people cause problems in my life, how somebody else was to blame for this thing happening. That's just how addiction affects the brain. So the addicted person has to learn through that 
fourth and fifth step in terms of how to turn that story right side up. What was my role in these problems? What did I contribute to this? How did, how did I set things in motion that eventually caused problems for myself? And then, of course, as you move in, you're looking at renewal steps where you're, you're looking at making amends and, and trying to, but making amends in a way that is not harmful to other people. A lot of times we want to get over our own guilt and shame over the past, and in the process of that, we just cause more harm. We have to have guidance in knowing how do you make amends effectively? How do, how do you go out and you repair relationships? How do you clean up your side of the street? But okay. most effectively is, again, steps 10, 11, and 12 are referred to as maintenance steps, which means this goes on forever. There's no end to this. So steps 10 of continuing to take inventory, admitting when I'm wrong, seeking through prayer and meditation you know, to improve my life, uh, helping others. That becomes a cycle then where essentially this thing comes full circle for me you know, to where now I have tools to use on a daily basis to maintain the progress that I've made. Now I want to jump around a little bit, Ed, with, uh, and bring up a couple of other topics here. Um, one of them is medication-assisted therapy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. It uh, at times can be somewhat controversial, particularly when um, you talk about uh, twelve step and there's some conflict back and forth. So, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think you know we are using medicine to treat addiction is nothing new. I mean, we have a long and unfortunately kind of sordid history with using medication. I can remember when I came into this field. You know, the medical community kind of felt that the best treatment for alcoholism was the use of benzodiazepines. It seemed like everybody was on Librium, you know, and it's like, oh, uh, alcoholism is an anxiety disorder or something, and, and we're going to give people this medication and they're going to be fine. Well, three or four years later, it was like, well, now we got all these people who are alcoholic and they're also addicted to drugs, you know, because these are highly addictive drugs. So, you know, I, I come from a, you know, I'm kind of old in the field, you know, I'm not a newcomer. So uh, I come to any kind of miracle drug with a very skeptical view. Um, and uh, so I come to the use of, of uh, Suboxone or Vivitrol or, or Methadone with the use of opiate addicted people, not so much with a skeptical view, but with somewhat of a guarded view. And, and I think that we we see an arc with any kind of medication that's introduced. It, it's introduced and it's like, this is the miracle. This is what we've been looking for. This is going to fix everybody. And it kind of gets promoted like that, maybe even marketed like that. And then it gets embraced like that. And then it gets used like that. And then what we find is, is that, you know, these folks still aren't getting better. You know, we're, we're still experiencing the same kind of problems that we had before the miracle drug, you know, came, came in. So I think the arc that we will, that we will see that will play out here is that we will see is that the use of uh, Suboxone, Vivitrol, uh, you know, MAT services is an effective tool, but it's only one tool in the toolbox. And it's not effective for everybody. And how it's used has to be individualized. And you don't see much of that. Right now, we see just a lot of people being, you know, kind of prescribed Suboxone kind of for an indefinite period of time and that people seem to be doing better. But if you follow and track them out further, you find that, no, not really. You know, that if you track it far enough, it's like, if that's all there is. And then, again, unfortunately, within 
All human beings, when we have a problem, we look for the easiest answer. And if I've got an addiction, and it's a raging addiction causing all kinds of problems, and I think that taking this pill is going to fix that, I'm going to gravitate toward that. I may not hear all the other things that you say about, I need counseling, I need to rebuild my life, I need to be, rebuild my relationships, I need to get a job, I need to... I may not hear any of that because I heard the easiest answer. And I think that we have to respect what this disease does to an individual along those lines. And that when we introduce Suboxone and we're still telling the person, well, you need to do all these other things, we, we may need to, to recognize the reality that maybe giving the medication just diminished their interest in doing the other things. So I think we've got a long way to go in terms of knowing how to truly integrate these medications. I think they have a purpose. I think they can be effective. Uh, but I think that when we start saying that everybody gets them and everybody needs them and you give it for an indefinite period of time and everybody kind of gets the same dose for this, I think that we will look back on this period of time and regret that that was the path that we, that we went down. Well, before our interview, when we were talking, you mentioned also another concept that I was unaware of, this second-generation pill mills. Well, that's one of the other things is that, you know, uh, what we're seeing is is that <clears throat> uh, we're seeing a pattern of prescribing of, of Suboxone in particular that looks very much like the pill mill patterns of the past, you know, where people were, doctors were prescribing Oxycontin uh, and other prescription opiates. Uh, essentially, a person shows up at a doctor's office. They tell the doctor what they want. They pay a cash fee for that, and they get the medication from the doctor, or they get the prescription from the doctor. That sounds very much like the problem that we ran into that set this all in motion. And we're seeing that cropping up around the state. I hear a lot of my colleagues, and we have it. You know, we've, we've dealt with it in our community, and it's, it's other places. And that's the only real treatment, the, the counseling, the rehabilitation, all the other things that go along with recovery really are minimized uh, as much as possible because the physician is not wanting to put too many requirements on this person because they want them, of course, coming back and buying, the, buying this prescription. So I have a lot of concerns about that. I have a lot of concerns that somehow medication-assisted treatment becomes 95% of what the treatment is. And we see that that doesn't work. We're having people come to our agency today that are asking for us to help them get off Suboxone. Wow. But that's been their drug of choice now for a period of time and they can't get off it. They're abusing it. You know, they buy some, they sell some. Uh, you know, they get a prescription from a doctor and they get a high dose. They don't need that high dose. So they are able to sell some of that. So it becomes, again, part of that that, that marketing of a drug and also that diversion of the drug out onto the streets. And I have a lot of concern when you have somebody who's trying to perhaps get well, has some interest in getting well, enough to where they went to a doctor, but now they're engaged in illegal activity along with that trying to get well, meaning they're either not taking the drug as prescribed or they're selling part of their prescription. That's not a prescription for getting well. That's, that's a prescription for relapse. So, so these are people that started off coming in with heroin addiction. Yes. And they end up on Suboxone. Yes. So they're trading one addiction for another and haven't solved any problem. 
Yes, and that's for those people. That is, they're they're still addicted. They're they're addicted to Suboxone now, and the medication is not being used as a tool. It, you know, it, it is like the end result. You know, it's like this is the be all and end all. It's not being used as a tool to help that person to rebuild their life. You mentioned some time frames that if you were to have a patient that was using treatment to say Suboxone, how long would would that be? Well, we've created a residential model where we're able to bring people and put them in residential treatment, and we're doing a six-week taper for people. And, of course, one of the reasons we're able to do that is that we're able to manage whatever continuing withdrawal symptoms they may have, you know, at that six-month. We're able to manage that within a residential setting, you know, so... that has been a very effective program for us. And then we are also helping people transition to Vivitrol, which is a non-narcotic medication. Uh, and so, uh, again, very much in the infancy of trying to understand how to integrate these medications in an effective way. Again, I think the phase we, the phase that most providers got into, unfortunately, in the beginning was we'll just give everybody Suboxone mm-hmm. and, and then we'll try to get some clinical services going. I think we see that that just creates kind of a chaos and so now we're trying to figure out how do you get these, these medications integ- integrated within this whole plan. And for some people, they may not be able to manage Suboxone. We, we, we have some patients that they have tried Suboxone so many times that what happens is, is that once they start taking Suboxone, they cannot help but to abuse it or divert it or to disengage from the other services that have been recommended for them. Okay. So for that for that population, and it may be a small population, it's like we have to look at another alternative, you know, for these people. New topic. Sure. Accomplishments. How important are accomplishments in recovery? A huge. The, the the one of the one of the one of the very I've already mentioned one of the very serious byproducts of addiction, and that is the brain's kind of state of joylessness that it comes into recovery with. And that's going to last for a while. It's going to get better. How it's long is a while? Well, based upon the based upon the person, based upon the drugs they've been using for how long, but we will we will see, you know, somewhere three to six months, a person will start reporting that. You know, one of my favorite experiences to share is I used to do a group at uh, at Stepping Stone House, our women's residential program, and I got there real early one morning and before the group, and there were two mothers that were sitting there because women are able to bring their kids into recovery there with them. And one of the mothers shared with the other mother, she said, I had the best time with my kids last night. We watched a movie and ate popcorn. It was wonderful. I said, it was, she said, it was the best time I've ever had with my kids in my life. And the other mother looked at her and said, you've been doing that every day, for every night for two months. What was so special about last night? And in reality, there was nothing special about last night. Her brain was starting to awaken. And so she had been doing the right thing for the right reason with her children, but it was more of a task. I should sit down with my kids. I should be with them. I should do this. And that experience, all of a sudden, she got the benefit of that. Her brain lit up. The chemicals in her brain said, this is a great experience, and it feels good, and it feels good to feel good. So... That joylessness is one of those states that a person, you know, um, uh, comes into t- comes into recovery with. The other state that they come into with is terribly low self-esteem, rock-bottom self-esteem, and oftentimes the addicted person doesn't even know what that is. They don't know that that's how they feel about themselves. But every time that they fail in life, every time they have to ask for their 
as an adult, you have to ask your parents for $10 to put gas in the car, or you have to ask somebody to come get you out of jail, or you have to ask for food. All those things are self-esteem diminishing. You know, Everything that the addicted person has to do in, in their day is diminishing of their self-esteem. And the only way you're going to recover is to recover from that. You've got to, your self-esteem has to get better. The only way that self-esteem can get better is through accomplishment. I don't care what you do for me. You can do wonderful things for me. Give me wonderful things. Give me a brand new car and nice clothes and money in my pocket. That doesn't do anything for my self-esteem. In fact, it probably diminished it because you had to do it for me. So accomplishment becomes extremely important. And one of the first things that we try to help people understand about accomplishing something is, can you accomplish your treatment plan at your treatment agency? Another thing I know you address is life skills. Yes. You assess their life skills and where they are and then help them with that. Yes. And that certainly can go a long way to contributing to that sense of accomplishment. Absolutely. And we have people coming to us all all across the scale in terms of what do they know about life and what have they done in life. I mean, we have people that are highly educated and have worked jobs and come to us for treatment, but we have people who come to us that have never completed high school and they've never worked a job. And, and in some cases, some of the social skills, the life as an addicted person, for any addicted person, life as an addicted person is about survival. And so you're trying to survive your addiction every day. And part of your survival is how you interact with other people. So you start to manipulate other people. You start to take advantage of them. You start to see people for what you can get from them. That is a part of recovery is to be able to see people as other people and to be able to learn how to manage relationships and how to manage being at a work site, how to interview for a job, how to manage getting turned down for a job, how, how to manage uh, uh, failing. How to, you know, all of these things are things that are very difficult for most addicted people. Uh, because they have either not developed those skills or addiction in that survival mechanism that they've been operating under uh, has essentially stripped those skills away. If an addicted person continues to approach life as something that has to be survived, they will relapse because they will be taking advantage of people, they will be manipulating, they will not be doing things for themselves that they should be doing for themselves, and that is a prescription for everything to just unravel for them. I want to go back to something we were talking about just a little bit earlier and um, just to to bring one point out, and that is on dual diagnosis with a mental illness, um, there's a, uh, for whatever reason, the physicians oftentimes, they work in a treat in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. both the recovery and the treatment of that mental illness. And oftentimes you'll have a drugs that the mentally ill will be on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a real danger. Yes. Can you speak to that? Yes. It again, kind of goes back to that holistic approach is mm-hmm. that we need to be able to evaluate the mental status of someone and their mental health needs. However, almost 100% of people that present for drug and alcohol treatment on day one will have mental health symptoms. You can't do that to your brain without having depression and anxiety and mood swings and sleep problems. I mean, that's all going to be there for every addicted person. 75% of the people in Ohio who have been diagnosed with a mental illness have never seen a psychiatrist. That diagnosis has been made by a primary care physician or somebody in an emergency room. A lot of times the medications that somebody has been prescribed have been prescribed while they were high they were using drugs, and the physician didn't know it. You know, perhaps, you know, or didn't understand the addiction. 
or they, the person was in a critical condition, critical state, you know, suicidal or in some kind of crisis and had to be prescribed. So the goal is, is to get this thing all kind of back to square one. Let's evaluate what's really here. And that's, again, another value of residential care is that you can put somebody in a safe environment where you're really not that worried about their anxiety or their depression or their mood swings. You can manage that. They're safe. And you can see because the majority of these psychiatric symptoms are transient symptoms. If a person will not, if they will stop using these other drugs, then these symptoms will abate. They will, they will minimize and oftentimes are very manageable. The majority of alcohol and drug patients could be diagnosed with a mental illness, but the majority are not mentally ill. But you have to manage that. You have to have a response. You have to be able, and you know, the world that we live in here as addiction counselors, we prefer to use therapy and counseling to try and deal with these kind of problems and make medications kind of secondary. Because we, there are a lot of medications that are used to treat mental illness that uh, will perpetuate an individual's craving for their drug of choice. So if I'm alcoholic and you give me a tranquilizer, a benzodiazepine, it will perpetuate my craving for alcohol. If I'm an opiate-addicted person and you give me uh, a non-narcotic pain medication uh, that still has still fills in some of those receptors in the brain for my opiate addiction, it may create craving for the opiate, even though that drug itself may not be an opiate. And, and psychotropic medications oftentimes are very powerful, very powerful drugs. So I just think we have to be very cautious. And again, it becomes a part of that total assessment of an individual uh, the majority of people that come to treatment here bring their psych they bring a bag of psychotropic medications with them and they've been prescribed by multiple doctors most, most of the time not a psychiatrist never almost never prescribed while they were clean and sober they were still using so we like to kind of start from scratch and kind of figure all that out and again if a person does have a mood disorder a depressive disorder an anxiety issue then we've got to address that, but we have to address it within the within within that understanding. This person also has this other disease of addiction, which may mean there are certain medications that you just can't use. That we have to take other steps, just like a an opiate addicted person that has a chronic pain issue. They're going to have to look at being able to manage that chronic pain issue with something other than an opiate medication. And the same thing would hold true for people with mental illness. There may be, again, uh, some medications that are just not going to work for somebody who has an addiction. Okay. Last topic for you. Okay. Is the community recovery strategy. Can you speak a little bit of, to that? One of the problems that addicted people are experiencing is they're going into treatment. Again, oftentimes the most effective way to do that is to go into a residential treatment setting. And they're either, you know, coming back, coming out of that right into their local community, or sometimes they're having to go to another community to get that residential care and then come back to their home community. When they come back to their home community, typically now we're facing the addicted person is having to engage a lot of folks who may have good intentions, but they don't understand addiction. So they may be having to deal with their probation officer and the minister at their church and, and the person at the grocery store and their family and their friends. And oftentimes these folks are very uninformed about what addiction is. 
and 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 maybe even unintentionally are creating barriers for that person in terms of their their now who they're trying to integrate back into their community. Uh, families oftentimes don't understand why this you know oftentimes a family's response to somebody starting to get well is that okay now you need to pick up your life and get moving again. So let's go back to college. Let's get this. Let's get this job. Let's do this. Do this. And the treatment people, the people who are trying to help this person stay well, are saying, "Slow down. Easy does it. Take it. Take these things kind of slow. Let's let's focus on not <laughs> not getting high or getting drunk today. You know, you know. So oftentimes that community that is needed by the addicted person is one who just first of all understands that they have a disease that means they have to take direction from someone that can help them to navigate what they're going to need to do, not only with not drinking or using, but their employment, relationships, new relationships. You know. And again, one of the things that I think is going to be the next step for us as treatment agencies or as just as communities is that we've got to, we've got to, to deal with the stigma we have associated, how, how addicted people are viewed, and I understand why addicted people are viewed in a very negative way because most people engage addicted people when they're at their worst. You know, they're in the emergency room. They're in the court system. They're getting arrested. You know, they're intoxicated. That's, that's what most people see of the addicted person. They're not really sure what this recovery thing is. And so we need to help people understand that, that those are symptoms of this, who this individual is. It's not who they are. It's just symptoms of their disease. And then for them to understand the recovery process. Family needs, families need to understand what this person's going to need to do. I've seen families, spouses sometimes, boyfriend, girlfriends, who are resentful because this person's going to so many AA or NA meetings at night. You know, it's like you've been gone to treatment, now you're back home, and now every night you're heading out. And if they don't understand that this person's life depends upon that, you know, then, you know, then all of a sudden they will start to create perhaps a conflict whereby this in, this individual may start making a decision. Do I stay home because of the pressure to do that or do I go to my AA meeting? And we don't want a person in that kind of a position, sure. you know. And then you see, you see the same thing with employment and, and uh, trying to be a part of a church membership or be a part of a civic organization is that addicted people – have to navigate through this. Now, it gets much easier for addicted people. They can manage a family member saying, why are you doing all this meeting stuff? Or they can manage an employer asking them to do something that would make them uncomfortable. Or they can manage a friend asking them to go out and have a couple of beers. But in the beginning, in those first months, in that first year, you know, those kind of situations are all uh, are all perplexing and stressful and difficult. So the more that our community can understand addiction, the more that... Uh, that uh, the family can be willing to embrace the things they need to learn about dealing with an addicted person the same way they would do if they had another disease. Any final thoughts for our listeners, Ed? I, I think that, you know, one of the things that happens so often that we don't ever get to is, is that there is, a, there is a, uh, uh, a real hopeful nature to this disease, uh, people have been recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction for a long time. Uh, people recover in different ways. There's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of wonderful, beautiful stories of recovery and the miracle that, that, that is created there. And not only how it affects the addicted person, but how it affects all these other people in their lives in terms of that. 
I think that family members need to focus on the potential, the real potential for recovery as they're dealing with the perhaps the uglier symptoms of this disease when someone's in their active addiction to realize that that's the goal. Recovery is the goal. Getting somebody out of jail or, or you know, getting them a job or, or getting some consequence, you know, to go away, that's not the goal. The goal is recovery. And if the family can start kind of focusing on that rather than some of this, these, this, this chaos that the addicted person is creating. But to do that, the family needs to know that there are recovering people out there. And I would, I would encourage family members to go to open AA meetings. You know, there are closed AA meetings and open AA meetings. And closed meetings is just for the people who are in recovery themselves. But Narcotics Anonymous and AA exist almost every community in Ohio and in many ways in a big way. Um, and open meetings can be a very good forum for somebody to be able to walk in and say, oh, here's a bunch of people who are getting better. You know, I, I want my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, I hope they're here someday. But in the meantime, I, I want to meet these people. I want to know what this is about. Al-Anon is a wonderful resource for people. Al-Anon is available in most communities. It's like AA for family members. If family members can engage in their own process of getting better in terms of what this disease is doing to them or has done to them, that'll make them more effective in being able to help their loved one in a real way when the time comes for them to be able to do that. Well, Ed, I want to thank you. This, uh, that was terrific. Very good. Um, we've been meeting with Ed Hughes from the Counseling Center in Portsmouth, Ohio. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Please join us for another podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.